mind right now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you, we close our eyes and we bow our heads. Um, We bow our heads in reverence. We close our eyes because these eyes can't help us with what we need to do right now. Lord, what what we're doing right now with our eyes closed is we're trying to set the gaze of our hearts on you. Lord, that's where we want to lift you high in our minds and in our hearts to reflect on your great glory, the wonder of your character, your absolute holiness and sovereignty and supremacy. Lord, we live in a world where lots of people elevate themselves to these high positions and we could be tempted to look at them and think that they're great, but they are as ants before you, Lord. So we turn, we turn the eyes of our hearts all the way up to you. And we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you set a vision in front of us, Lord? Set a vision in front of us to pursue you, to gaze on your beauty and to be filled. Lord, it's with those eyes that we want to see you this morning. So Lord, as we continue on in our worship service, you tell us in your word that you're here with us in our midst. And Lord, I, I pray that we would walk out of here today with a real sense, oh man, we met with the Lord today and that we leave full. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, hey, before you sit down, would you do me a favor? There's a couple people around you that maybe you don't recognize. Would you extend a warm hand of fellowship? Maybe even cross an aisle. Maybe. I don't know. Okay, well, in just a second, we're going to turn our attention to the section of the scripture that our teaching is based off of today. And I just have to tell you kind of up front, there's a few things that I need to accomplish today in the sermon. Uh, A couple of them, um, uh, one of them is a calendar item. I don't want to let this moment pass. We need to mark it as a congregation. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm attempting to fit it into the sermon, but, you know... Um, it, it might not flow that smoothly. It might kind of feel like a little bit of an interruption. It's okay. It's important enough that it's appropriate for it to interrupt it. Uh, another thing that I need to share with you is something that's a little more organizational. And uh, there's a place that the, you know, chapter three of Genesis, there's a natural spot for us to talk about it. Um, but if today it feels like there's a kind of a, um, I don't know, uh, a, a little bit of turbulence in the sermon today, um, there is a lot packed into this chapter, and there is a lot for us to focus on this morning as a congregation. Uh, and that means that we're going to have to, we are, we are going to have to work together. The sermon is going to call us somewhere today. We're going to open up to Genesis chapter three, and while we're reading it, I'm certain, um, if you had never read the Bible before, and this was the first time you were ever hearing Genesis chapter three, major questions would come into your mind. And what I want to do is maybe you've read it a hundred times and come to some simplistic answers to major questions. Um, one, one of the most profound human emotions that anyone can ever experience is the emotion of standing in front of another person and deep down from within feeling shame. Even to say the word shame evokes an emotion from us, doesn't it? Isn't that a feeling that you want to avoid at any cost? We want to avoid it so badly that in our our culture right now, 
For anyone to feel shame in and of itself is a terrible, evil wickedness. And anyone who ever makes anyone feel ashamed of anything, they're the problem. And this morning in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, so far, the, you know, the human characters that we've been meeting in the story, are going to do something. Before they do it, they're, they're naked and they don't feel any shame at all. And the, the moment that Adam rebels against God and grabs something that was not his... The moment that he does that, instantaneous, deep, psychological change. The first time any human being ever felt shame was in Genesis chapter 3. This is one of the amazing things about the book of Genesis is even though the events that this, the historical events that Genesis accounts for and records and tells us about, they did happen in a world that perished. Many things about this, the story of Genesis have changed since then. Many things are, are, are vastly different than they were for, uh, for the, the characters in the first few chapters of Genesis. But one thing that is straight up the same, it's not easy to deal with God. It's not easy to deal with God in his great glory and in his holiness and in his majesty. And it's not easy to be a human. We're made in his image with these amazing capacities. We're, <laughs> we're too smart for our own good, too small, smart for our own good, too many for our own good. Um, and Genesis, this chapter is going to, I mean, it's going to poke right at, um, right at a common human emotion. That is an awful one. Um, now I have to tell you, in Genesis chapter 3, um, there are many things about the relationship between a husband and wife, about the gender difference, differences between the two, and about the roles that God originally created before the fall right here in Genesis. We're going to see it played out. Uh, Adam and Eve both sin. They sin differently. They sin with different degrees of responsibility. And when the, um, the temptation happens in a way that takes their gender difference into account, and when there's a consequence for their sin, consequences get distributed by a holy and just God differently, right along according to their offices and to their gender difference. I could devote the whole sermon to the gender difference, except if you come this Friday and Saturday to the Unashamed Conference, I've got a whole week, we have a whole weekend to talk about that. So I, in, I invite you to come back. Today, I, I really, we're going to touch on those themes, but today I really want us to really think about um, what was it like for Adam and Eve when <clears throat> instantly eyes opened, complete, completely different psychological state. So with that in mind, I want you to take out your copy of God's Word, open up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis 3, 1. Sorry, I'm going to start at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. 
This is the first verse of this entire section. Everybody understands the chap, all the numbers that got inserted, got inserted by human authors later. Oftentimes they're real helpful for us. Sometimes they get placed at a spot that breaks something up in the original composition. And this is one of those. This section begins with this statement. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand from the teaching of your word that without your Holy Spirit's help, 
we cannot glean and take from your word what it is that we need to know. And Lord, you know how much there is from this chapter that we need to know. So much truth for us to come out. I pray that the part that you've portioned for us today, would, would you give us the help that we need in order to, to understand it, not just hear it, to really comprehend it, not just see it. And Lord, give us a desire to obey what it's telling us. And I pray that you do all this through the inner work of your Holy Spirit right now. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, if you had brought a friend to church today and that was the first time that they had ever heard Genesis chapter 3, how many questions do you think that they'd have? I mean, we can make an index of a few of them, right? Um, are you telling me that a snake talked? Right? Isn't that one of them? Or after when God cursed the serpent and said, from now on, the way that you're going to get around is crawling on your belly. Well, how in the world did he get around before that? Yeah. What does it mean that their eyes were opened? How is it that Eve could see that the tree, that the fruit of the tree was, it was, it was beautiful, it was to be desired, she wanted it, she, she did all that with, with her eyes. How is it that after she ate and after Adam ate, how is it that their eyes were opened? Was there another, is there a second set of eyes? What did it mean that they could already see, but that they could, and what in the world does it mean that all of a sudden in one shot, they were naked one moment and fine with it, and the very next moment they were naked and absolutely not fine with it? What in the world is going on here? Now, my job is not to invent answers to these questions. My responsibility is to give you the Bible's answer to these questions. And we are so much further along than this. Because not only do we have Genesis chapter 3, we have the entire rest of the Bible that gives us more and more and more and more information. And I can't tell you how many times I've either sat with people or heard people teaching, and they're, they're almost ignoring the fact that they have the rest of the Bible that tells them all kinds of truths about what we have right here, and wondering about things that we ought not wonder about because the Bible answers the questions. So, as we work our way through the text, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be attempting to point to other parts of the scripture that help us understand how we can come to, to sort of see and, and understand what, what exactly happened when Eve was standing there with the tree in front of her and the serpent was talking to her. What happened? And why in the world when Adam was standing right there with her, what was that loser doing? <laughs> right? Okay. Everybody ready? Now, if you don't know, what we on the way in, we put together a little sermon booklet. It has pages for notes. Today, there might be some times that you want to scratch down some notes. Some of the things I'm going to do, I don't have time for us to turn to every section of the Bible. I'm going to point to sections of Scripture that help fill this in, and, uh, and we're going to move right along. First off, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is verse 1. Now, Revelation tells us about this serpent, that this serpent is not an animal serpent. It tells us that this serpent is much more than that. Revelation tells us that this serpent is Satan, Lucifer, the dragon, the snake, the devil. Um, we understand and we know that Satan as a dragon and as a, as, a, as a serpent, as an angel, was a seraph. We know that in the Bible, a seraph is a kind of angel. 
And the kind of angel that a seraph is, is a six-winged, serpentine, spiritual creature. A snake that could fly and talk. That's the kind of angel that Lucifer, that Satan is. A seraph angel. Um, Can't you see why I told you you might want to take out a piece of paper for some notes? Now, what do angels have a special role with human beings all through the Bible? Angels have a special teaching ministry to human beings. This is why scripture could say that the law, the law of God, the Old Testament, the law of God was given to Moses through angels. Angels have a special teaching ministry. So for a seraph, a serpentine, six-winged angel to be having a conversation with Eve about the teaching and the decrees and the commands of God is not foreign. For her to have been talking with him is not a completely strange concept. However, for him to go to her tells us that what verse 1 is telling us about his craftiness is absolutely and certainly true. That word crafty is used 11 times in the Bible. Um, eight of those times it's used positively. Especially in the book of Proverbs where a father is talking to his son about what it means to have prudence, about what it means to have wisdom, about what it means to understand in a specific and complicated situation. How is it that you can accomplish your goals in, you know, in a difficult situation? What does it mean to have wisdom? So this, this seraph angel... Satan, the devil, the dragon, this serpent right here was extremely wise. He was so wise that he knew precisely how he could accomplish his task. Now we know from the rest of the Bible precisely what his task was. We understand that as an angel, he was part of what the Bible would call the divine council. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before the whole work of creation, they revealed to the angels what the entire plan of salvation was. From the very beginning, God had in his mind what he was going to do. Adam and Eve were going to necessarily fall. Human history was going to play out precisely the way that it did. And at exactly the right moment of time, God the Son was going to take on a human nature named Jesus Christ. He was going to die on the cross. He was going to be resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he was going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords over heaven and earth forever and ever and ever. Amen. This means that what the angels knew was that there was going to be a human being who was going to be divine and was going to rule over all of the heavens and all of the earth, and that meant that that human being was going to rule over them. We know that Satan was such a wonderful, glorious, wise angel, and we know that he could not live with the fact that he was going to be ruled over by a human being. And from the very beginning, he set in his own mind and heart and determined to stop the plan of salvation. This is why in the Bible, over and over and over again, the devil did not know which human being it was going to be, but the devil was consistently involved in destroying and taking away human life. If he could stop the plan of salvation, he could. He would. 
In fact, he was also used to tempt Jesus. Once he discovered who it was, once he discovered that Jesus was that man, he did everything in his power to try to stop him. He took him to the cross. He moved, he used so much of his power to have Jesus Christ crucified. And when Jesus Christ was laid in the grave, he thought that he had been victorious. And that plan all started right here in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to put a stop to that plan because if I can stop him, then I can be the ruler. And so where does he start? He starts with a conversation. And he starts with a conversation not with Adam. He starts with a conversation with Eve. Why? Why would he start there? Now we know from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that this command about all the trees except for these two right here, God directly spoke that command to Adam. Adam knew it. He heard it with his own ears straight from God. But Eve wasn't created yet. So Eve heard God's command about this tree, not from God himself, but from her husband. Now, let's think about this just for a second, okay? Everybody feel where this one's going? You're Eve. Now think about everything that you know about angels. Now you think about the most beautiful one. The most beautiful wise angel. Flies. And is talking to you. And asking you questions. You think your husband really got that right? Did, did God really say that? He's not... He's not directly to Eve questioning God. He's directly to Eve questioning her husband's competency in giving her what it is that God said. Did God really say? How does she do? She passes with flying colors. She does wonderfully. Because the the devil's even craftier than that. He he comes with an accusation that's much worse. Did, Did God really say you can't eat any of this? And she says, no, we can, no, we can eat all of it. But from that one right there, we can't eat and we can't touch it or we'll die. Now, some commentators will look at that and say, oh, see, she's got it wrong. She makes it harsher than it is. But I would, in, in the Old Testament, whenever God tells the Israelite people, that's unclean right there. Don't eat it. Not only are they not supposed to eat it, it's unclean. They're also not supposed to touch it. If something's unclean, not only do you not put it in, you don't get close to it, you don't touch it, you stay away from it. So my understanding of this verse is not that she got it wrong, but that she was, she was young and she's growing and learning wisdom. And one of the ways of wisdom that she's learning is God said not to eat it. And that means wisdom probably tells me that not only should I not eat it, I also shouldn't touch it either. And the serpent says he's, he's going to keep pressing the case. Now remember, Adam is standing right next to her this entire time. Letting... Letting Lucifer, the liar, the accuser, letting him have an unfiltered conversation right there with his wife. So the serpent keeps going. Verse 4, he directly opposes God. You're not going to die. Now that accusation is calling God a liar. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now remember, the, the devil is crafty. He is wise. And the New Testament tells us, the New Testament tells us that Adam and Eve, even though they both ate 
from this tree at the, in this same instance that they sinned differently. Uh, Paul tells us in Timothy that Eve was seduced or deceived, which means she did not know what she was doing, which meant that she thought that what she was doing was going to take her to a different place than it did. She was seduced. She was deceived. But not Adam. The Bible says that Adam rebelled. Adam did it knowing that he was going directly against the commands of God. But for Eve, something different was happening. What was it? Now I want you to just, you know, with, maybe with fresh ears to hear this again. So verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, here's some things that are going to happen. Your eyes will be opened. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Your eyes, your eyes are going to be opened. You will be like God. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, now. Um, for every human being that's made in God's image, don't, don't every single one of us have the responsibility to be like God? To be holy in his character? To pursue wisdom? To pursue righteousness? Aren't human beings made in the image of God? Aren't men especially uh, described as the glory of God? And don't we want people pursuing God-like character? Absolutely we do. So he says, okay, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. Now, why would that be specifically a a specifically successful task at seducing Eve? Um, And what in the world is Adam doing, standing there still doing nothing? So the woman saw that the tree was good. She saw it. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And right there is the deception. Was that tree ever called the tree of wisdom? No. Because wisdom isn't like magic. You can't get wise by eating something. No matter what the infomercials tell you, you can't get wise by eating something. How does one get wise? According to the Bible. Because the serpent is crafty, but he's not wise. Because wisdom is a combination of two characteristics. Wisdom is a a combination of moral righteousness and life competency. Moral righteousness and life competency. That's what it means to have wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? There is only one person that can give someone wisdom. And who is that? God. God is the only one who can give wisdom. Was it a good idea for Eve to have wanted to be wise? Certainly it was. And the reason why is because for both Adam and Eve, from the earlier chapters, we're told about the job description that Adam and Eve are both going to have. Adam and Eve are to exercise together, him as the husband, her as his strong helper, to exercise dominion over the entire creation. He is supposed to be the king of the earth, and she is supposed to be the queen of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Is it a good thing for a king and a queen to have wisdom? Wisdom being moral righteousness and life competency about how to handle difficult situations. Does anybody think it'd be a good idea to have people ruling over us who had moral righteousness 
and competency about the difference between good and evil. Okay, this is one of those places where I'm going to pause. Today, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, we, live in the, we live in a day right now where our political, educational, and entertainment elites hold two different values at the same time. I want you to listen to this and tell me if you think we could use some leaders in our country who had moral righteousness and the knowledge of wisdom between good and evil. Right now, if you committed, right now, if you or I went out and committed a crime against a woman who was pregnant and the crime against that woman led to the death of her baby, you, you would be held liable criminally for that, for that unborn child's death. That's in our law books. But if you're a mother and you don't want that pregnancy, you are free to do to that baby, you are free to end that baby's life um, with no ramifications. In what universe does that make any moral or wise sense? And some of our most highest, our most, some of our highest ranking people in our society hold both of those things at the same time and say, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. We're wise and competent. We're the ones here who are supposed to be telling you what to do. <laughs> my, I mean, my prayer today on Sanctity of Life Sunday is that, man, Lord, would you, would you show us grace? Would you, would you put over us leaders who have moral uprightness and wisdom? Um, now, if we were going to pray that prayer today, God, those are the kind of leaders that we want. You know the biblical prerequisite to having God put leaders over you with moral uprightness and wisdom? You know the prerequisite of that? God puts leaders over people that they deserve. When people lack moral uprightness or wisdom, he gives us, as his judgment, he gives us leaders who practice that same thing. Okay, here's what I'm saying. Because here's what we could do on Sanctity of Life Sunday. We could shake our heads and go, Whoa. And don't you sometimes feel helpless about what to do? What am I what? <laughs> With all the things that are going on, you look around and say, this is insanity. What can we even do besides a three-hour late-night rant on social media that doesn't, you know, I, I don't want to say anything about that. What, what do we do? Um... Well, who is it that can make a difference in the moral uprightness and sort of wisdom of people's lives? What, what organization on planet Earth has a specific purpose of talking to people about the truth and talk, talking to them about a message that can take out their heart of stone and heart of flesh and that over time what God can do is he can renew our minds with a whole new way of thinking? Who has the power to make a difference like that in society? We do. And the Bible tells us that Christians, what we are is we're a royal priesthood. And that means when we come together at church right here, one of the things that we do is we represent before God the people of our nation. And I know this is a little out of the ordinary, but what I'm going to ask you to do is, we're going to, just for a minute, we're going to do that. Before God, we're going to represent the people of our nation. To, we're going to represent our people before him. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, if, you, if you're able to, to we're going to get on our knees as a sign of humility, and we're going to pray on Sanctity of Life Sunday. We're going to pray that God would move. So if you can, and if you're willing, I'm going to ask that you would. I'm going to. 
Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're not telling you anything that you don't know. The leading cause of death in our country in the last year was the horror of abortion. And Lord, we're, we're a royal priesthood and we're here coming and talking to you on behalf of our nation. Lord, would you pour out your spirit on your churches all over this country and would you give us hearts that pursue you with vigor and intensity? Would, would you give us a desire to follow you? Would you fill us with an evangelistic passion to see a whole transformation happen, county by county, state by state, across our whole country? And Lord, I pray that, that when you do that, then what you would do is, is we humble ourselves. We're humbling ourselves on behalf of our country who will not humble themselves, on behalf of our leaders who will not, we humble ourselves and we ask, would you please turn our hearts in a new direction? And Lord, I pray, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but there aren't people who are listening right now who have had one. And Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that you call sin, sin. You don't, you don't lie about it. And yet you, you gave your son as a sacrifice for sin. And so even a terrible sin like having an abortion, even a terrible sin like that can be totally cleansed and forgiven by your blood. We really can walk in peace with you on the other side of it. Lord, we don't know how to run the world. You do. We trust you. But you tell us to come to you in prayer and tell you what we want. And Lord, what we want is an end to it in our country. Lord, teach us what we need to do as your, as your priests and help us to represent our people and to represent them by leading them straight to the cross of Jesus Christ where they can get a new heart and a new mind and a whole new life. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's appropriate. Okay, so now Adam and Eve are given the responsibility of dominion to be a king and a queen. There is no question that to be a king and a queen of this, how in the world are Adam and Eve going to figure out how to exercise dominion over bald eagles? That's a complicated job. I know there's some people who can make birds do what they want. I've seen it happen. That's a big job. There's a lot of things that Adam and Eve are going to have to learn how to do, but more than anything, they're going to have to exercise moral, wise leadership. The combination of moral righteousness and wisdom for dealing with situations are the two characteristics that they are going to need to grow up from a prince and a princess into a king and a queen. Now, there's another king, another young king named Solomon who becomes king after his father David. And he recognizes he becomes king by the act of God. His, his father dies, so now he's king. And he, God grants him a special thing. He, he grants him the opportunity to pray. Hey, ask me for what it is that you need. I'll give you anything. And what does Solomon ask for? Solomon asks for wisdom. 
And in Kings, he says it. He says, I don't, I'm, I don't know. This is a big people. I'm young. I don't know how to do this. But yet you've made me king. You've got to give me wisdom. And one of the ways that he describes what wisdom is, he says, give me wisdom so that I can know the difference between good and evil. Now, there's a way of reading Genesis chapter 3 about this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and have the understanding be that this tree was for God. It was never for them to eat from it. They should have stayed away from it forever. That's not my understanding. My understanding from all the rest of the Bible is that in order for human beings to, to lead, to exercise wise leadership, they have got to know the difference between good and evil. If they're going to exercise their responsibility of executing justice, How do you execute justice if you don't know what is good and if you don't know what is evil? It's not a question that they were never going to have it. It's that they were going to have it in God's own ways. So for for Adam and Eve looking at this tree, the crafty serpent comes and entices Eve to eat of the fruit, and she does. And then in her... The way that she's made by God, she helps her husband to do the same thing. And it's not until he eats, until he grabs hold of what is going to be his, but not yet. A shortcut, a shortcut to the ability to exercise justice, to make decisions, to rule. To me, this is the only way to make sense of what happens. Then once he eats, once he eats, and by the way, the New Testament tells us that it's not until he eats that sin enters the world. Once he eats it as the leader of their relationship, once he eats it, he is now allowed sin to enter the world and sin enters. And the moment that he does the both of them, now they know. And now their eyes are open. And multiple times the Bible talks about what it means to have your eyes opened. Because it tells us what your moral eyes do. There's a time in Israel's history where scripture says there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right and wrong in their own eyes. So now Adam and Eve both know. Now they know. They know. They know the difference between good and evil. But now that knowledge between good and evil is turned when they look at themselves and they look at, he looks at Eve and Eve looks at herself and he looks at himself. And what they've done is they've reached out for an ability that they have not grown up into. And now what they feel the difference of is now we've, we've taken a responsibility of knowing the difference between good and evil, but we haven't built up the moral character nor the wisdom to do so. Because in order to be a just judge or a righteous leader, two things are required, moral uprightness and wisdom for life. And Adam does not have enough wisdom in order to eat from that fruit. And he now for certain does not have the moral uprightness because he's just disobeyed God. And his instant feeling and her instant feeling is shame. And shame is the feeling of the difference between grabbing hold of an office, grabbing hold of an authority, having, having a power or an ability, but not having the moral uprightness or the wisdom to have both of those things and do it elegantly. And many times in the Bible, we see this exact thing. Uh, John the Baptist one time goes up to King Herod. King Herod is, has ruling authority. He's got the office. He is wearing the robe. 
He's wearing the robe and he's a moral scoundrel and a complete fool. John the Baptist, who has clothes, not quite the same elegance. It doesn't communicate, you know, the camel hair. He, he walks right up. Walks right up to King Herod. You're immoral. And you know what happens to King Herod? The internal shame that he knows that he has between the office that he's prancing around in front of everybody and his knowledge of his own internal moral character. The distance between those two things leads to so much shame and that shame comes out in insecurity and anger. What does he do to John the Baptist? What's, what's going to happen to John the Baptist? Certainly, you're going to die so that I, Herod, can keep pretending to be a morally upright character and a king who's competent, even though everybody knows he's not. There's only one other time in the Bible beyond this that a human being ever is naked, basically naked, no shame. Jesus Christ, the night he was being beaten, they put a fake robe on him and pretended to show him majesty. And they took his, his real robe, and remember, they gambled for it. And he was up on the cross. And what they were attempting to do, Scripture tells us that he scorned the shame of the cross. What they were purposely trying to do to Jesus Christ up on the cross is to make him feel ashamed. To try to show him, you were telling everybody that you're God. You're telling everybody that you're a great king. But look at you now. If you're so wonderful, if you have so much internal moral character, why don't you climb down from there and do something? What they were doing is they put him on the cross and they wanted him to feel the same thing that they thought they had. We know who you are and you are not who you keep saying that you are. And we want everybody to know the distance between who you're pretending to be and who you really are. And how did Jesus feel on the cross? Did he feel one ounce of shame up there? The Bible says he scorned their shame. Why? When Jesus is up on the cross, basically naked... Has he become less attractive to you or more? When they stripped it off and said, oh, we're going we're to show you who he really is. Once on the cross, we see who he really is. Less attractive to you or more? Jesus Christ on the cross, no robe of office, no great glory. What is up there totally exposed for everybody to see. One, his moral uprightness. Two, he's the wisdom of God. Jesus willingly went to the cross knowing what was on the other side of that. He said, this is... This isn't in my way to getting everything that God has told me I'm going to have. This is the way. And ever since then, 
every single Christian who has ever had their heart struck with the mixture of shame, he's up there not because he did anything, he's up there because of what I've done. I've pretended to be more than I am. I don't really want to open up and tell people about the things that really I've done. I'll, I'll walk around like, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person when deep down I really know, no, I'm not. And what's he doing up there? He's up there, for, he's up there for me, for the things that I've done. He's up there. Even though he didn't do anything. That's called the gift of repentance. We come to Jesus and we can go, I, could, I don't have to pretend to have it together. He, he's up there dying for my sin. But we don't stay in repentance. You know, we look at him and we go, how? I've never had any king. I've never had anybody of, 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 I mean, power and glory and beauty and wonder. I've never had anybody as amazing as him care about me so much to do that for me. On the cross, Jesus totally exposed. And up there, he knows. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, just like this. My life totally on display. This is who I am. I'm telling you the truth about me. He, him on the cross is telling the truth about you, and there's only one way to come to him. You can't pretend your way there. And Jesus knew that this is... How is it that Jesus comes into his kingdom? It's not by grabbing hold of it. It's by the Father giving it to him, gifting it to him. And you know what his kingdom is made of? People kingdom is made of people like you and me. And the way we come into that kingdom is by seeing the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for you, telling you the truth. And I just want to finish the sermon and ask you, what? What have you done about that? What have you done with him? What have you decided about him? You hiding from him? Or have you come to him? Would you stand to your feet? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm um, I couldn't I can't cover it all. But I pray that the words that I've said about your son. I pray that the words I've said about shame, about what it means to come clean with you, Lord, I pray. Lord, for all of us, whether we've already come to Christ or whether what's happening right now, the most glorious thing that the human race has ever seen is Jesus Christ in his right there. Lord, stir our affections for him and draw us to him. 
pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, in just a minute, we're going to close with, uh, it's, it's appropriate when we lift up the glory of Christ to express our affections to him with singing. We're going to do that in just a minute. Um, but one other thing I wanted to say here, and I think up on the screen is going to come a couple of images. Um, what Adam should have done when Eve was under the influence of a lying teacher, what Adam should have done is to step in because it's, it was Adam's responsibility to guard and protect the garden, and that also meant protecting his wife from the evil influence of a false teacher. This translates to the church. We're, we're the family of God, and it means that our church has a group of men who serve as elders, and their calling and office and responsibility is to guard and to protect. One of the primary things that they guard and protect against is evil, false teaching entering into the church, sin entering into the church in that way. And so this means that uh, periodically we are looking for men to serve in the office of elders. And what we're looking for is men who are, have morally upright character and have demonstrated over their lives wisdom in handling situations. These are the men that we need to serve as rulers, leaders, officers within our congregation. So uh, oh. uh, we have two men that uh, have gone through the process with us as elders in the interview process. Um, that's Andy Hall. Many of you know Andy. Uh, Dave Gudekunst. Right now we're in the place where we're putting them before you as kind of a final affirmation and check-in. If anyone knows anything about their moral character or a lack of wisdom, both of those things are needed to serve in office. If you know of anything that it would be wise for us as elders to talk with and investigate, we, we need to hear from you. This week an email is going to go out to everybody who's a member in our congregation. And uh, what we're wanting to hear back from you is an affirmation that, that we've discerned rightly and that there's nothing that we need to check into. Or if there is something that we need to check into, then you can let us know about that. Um, so just before we kind of close in a song, I know we're a little long today. I'm going to uh, lift these two guys up and our process um, in prayer. And I'm going to ask that you join me. Would you do that? Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray for your... God, Lord, I thank you for the men who have served so faithfully over all 40 years of our church in the office of elder, guarding and protecting and tending and keeping our congregation. And I look at all that you've done here. It's amazing to me. So, Lord, now we're at the place where we, are, we have three guys who have finished up their terms and two who are coming to replace in service. Lord, I pray for Dave and for Andy. Lord, I pray for our, our, us as a congregation. Give us wisdom in this final step. I pray by your spirit, if there's anything we need to know, bring it to light. And Lord, I pray, if not, that there be a great affirmation and outpouring of celebration at their willingness to serve with the expectation and anticipation of all that you have in front of us for these next years. God, give us wisdom to do that. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.